The ultimate expression of Christian spirituality is popularly perceived to be some form of monasticism. The zenith of Christian devotion is supposedly reached when one is cloistered away in a monastery or a convent or at a retreat center or in a beautiful church building somewhere. Cloistered there to contemplate God. The subtle assumption is that Christianity constitutes at its deepest level a pursuit of mystical experiences and or intellectual stimulation. But let's make no mistake about it. The life to which Jesus calls us is a bloody, sweaty, grimy, earthy affair. Our highest end as human beings is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to love Him with all of our hearts as He transforms us by meditation upon His Word through His Spirit. Warm spiritual experiences and satisfyingly intellectual endeavors will certainly accompany such worship. But authentic Christian spirituality entails living, transformed lives in a real world. It involves rubbing shoulders with Jesus' enemies, resisting the flesh, handling suffering, trial, and weakness, relating with courageous devotion to God's people. Genuine Christian devotion rolls up its sleeves and actively obeys God in the sweatshop of human affairs. It is an earthy, spirituality that we gain from the Hebrew Scriptures and from the follow, as, as we follow Jesus Christ. It is an earthy spirituality that labors with its gaze fixed on the promise of a renewed universe inhabited by saints in resurrected bodies laboring for the glory of the incarnate Christ. I think unless we are armed with a robust sense of this biblical perspective, we are entirely unprepared to grasp the wisdom of the poem that closes the book of Proverbs. And I invite you to turn there, if you will, in your Bibles this morning. Our culture will yield no help in understanding our Creator's wisdom in this poem, which is utterly offensive to worldly-minded readers. But as we operate from a biblical framework... We see here God as creator of the universe and designer of man as male and female. And we find here a radiant picture of ideal humanity from the feminine angle. In Proverbs chapter 31, beginning at verse 10, we pick up a poem that is attached here at the end of the book. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10. With this sense of an earthy spirituality, we consider here what God says and how He counsels us from His Word. Proverbs 31 and verse 10, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. 
She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. It is my intention for us to stop at this passage for several weeks and to shake free some of the sanctifying fruit that we find here. Before we begin to pick up On the first verse, we look to see here that there are 22 verses, and I'd like us to invest some time investigating their entire literary background. We'll just look at three verses today, but I'd like to do some spade work, first of all, and to consider the literary background. There's much here. That might sound like a dry idea for some and somewhat teachy, but I think it's very important as we lay the foundation to understand uh, this poem. It is indeed an acrostic poem. Each of the 22 verses starts with a Hebrew consonant in alphabetical order. There's 22 Hebrew letters, and they come in order. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. You maybe have seen this in Psalm 119. You'll notice even those strange words at various headings throughout the Psalms. Psalm 119, and that's the Hebrew alphabet, an acrostic poem. We have the same here. Here, every verse is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This was done to help individuals memorize this poem. I think it's possibly also a literary device emphasizing the importance of the matter that is under consideration. In Psalm 119, it is very important to consider the Word of God from A to Z, so to speak. And here we consider this unique woman from A to Z. Reading it as an acrostic poem, we do not expect it to be logically arranged. We don't expect it to be necessarily exhaustive. We use this type of scheme, an acrostic idea when it comes to the distinctives of the Baptist faith, the Baptist distinctives, and sometimes we spell out the word Baptist, B, believer's baptism, and A, uh, the autonomy of the local church, and P, the priesthood of the believer and the like. It helps us kind of remember these ideas. They're not exhaustive by any means, nor is this poem exhaustive, but as an acrostic poem, it says very important things, but sometimes a bit out of sync with with the verse before or after because uh, it is an acrostic poem. What might miss us even more is the fact that it is a heroic poem. You notice the phrase in Proverbs 31 and verse 10, an excellent wife. The word excellent has a wide range of meaning 
And it speaks of some, in some places of excellence and others of noble character, sometimes of strength, sometimes of wealth. It's sometimes used as a noun to speak of an army that is very capable. But its predominant translation in the Hebrew Scriptures is the English word valor. Valor. I'd like to take you to 2 Kings 24 just to demonstrate this if you... And turn there quickly, 2 Kings chapter 24, and verse 14. We read here of the fall of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquering Jerusalem. And just in the description of that event, 2 Kings 24, notice verse 14. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. That word valor is the same Hebrew word that we have translated excellent in Proverbs 31. Go down to verse 16 of 2 Kings 24. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor. Again, the same word, excellent in, ver- in Proverbs 31. Here, the word valor, speaking clearly of soldiers. 7,000 in number. And notice he says there, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000 of all of them, strong and fit for war. He separates out a bit the craftsmen. Uh, not that they're not men of valor uh, as such, but there's a difference between wielding a sword and picking up a hammer and knocking on some metal with it. These men of valor are the soldiers. They are the warriors. And they are unique. What is more, the poem employs a number of military terms and concepts in describing the woman of Proverbs 31. When that word excellent is used, or that woman of valor is used, along with these military terms that we find throughout the poem, something is being said here. And it's something quite unique. Hebrew scholars conclude that in vocabulary and form, what we have here is a piece of heroic poetry. Now, who are the icons of our culture? The icons of our culture are rock stars and movie stars and professional athletes and the like. And what do we do to notice them? They might buy a poster of one or a baseball card or have a t-shirt or something, a jersey that has someone's name on the back, something like this. Well, obviously none of this is possible in ancient Israel. They didn't know how good they had it, but none of that's possible. And what do they do then? with their icons. Well, first we ask, who are the icons? They're the soldiers. You put together all of the esteem that our culture puts upon such individuals that we speak of as celebrities. You boil it all together, and it doesn't even begin to approximate the esteem of the ancient Israeli warrior. Now, there's no trading cards for warriors in ancient Israel. But what there is are heroic poems. The ancient warriors of Israel were celebrated with poems that immortalized their heroic exploits on the field of battle. We've, you've read one of these, 2 Samuel chapter 1, as David speaks of the great exploits of Jonathan and Saul following their death. These heroic poems were a genre of literature in the ancient world, in ancient Israel. Here's the stunning conclusion. The excellent wife is afforded similar praise to the warriors of Israel. She is a woman of valor. She's a bona fide champion. Now it's amazing how some people try to use that and to put a sword in her hand. We won't find any swords in her hand as we go through Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10. But we don't throw out this concept. She is being presented as a woman of great valor, along with the greatest 
of esteemed persons in Israel. Far from demeaning women, as feminists would charge, Proverbs 31 affords heroic praise to the kind of woman who obeys God and fulfills his design for her as a woman in the battle trenches of life. And that's where we find her. But it is a heroic poem, an acrostic poem. It is also a universal poem. And here's where I think we need to really engage our minds Generally speaking, Proverbs was originally addressed to young men at court who were being trained to live skillfully in the service of the king. Specifically here, this may be the words of Lemuel's mother to him, if we are to take verses 10 and following with this whole chapter. Chapter 31, verse 1, you find there the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. It is possible that verse 10 is to be included in that. There's debate on that point. It really doesn't matter. The point is, this was addressed to men and particularly to young men. But this poem is obviously included in Scripture for everyone's edification. Bruce Watke reminds us that, quote, by nature, proverbial material sets forth exemplars, people who are an example, asking audiences to make the appropriate application to their own spheres. So we should seek to, he says, incarnate the wisdom the excellent wife embodies in our own sphere of activity. I would say that this passage in Proverbs has something to say to you, whoever you are. To the unmarried men, there's a direct application here. It was addressed to unmarried men. God is teaching you what to value in a young woman. And Maybe some of the boys here are saying, I'm really not too worried about that right now. And that may be the case, but it is important even now, long before you think of marriage, to begin to learn what an excellent woman looks like. To the unmarried women, the application is a bit distinct, but fairly similar. God is teaching young men what an ideal woman looks like. You should listen in. Imagine if you wanted the part in a musical. You really wanted a certain part. And as providence would have it, you are seated in a hallway, kind of around a corner, and you hear the director of the musical around the corner. He can't see you, and he's talking to the person who's going to judge you for your audition this morning. And he's talking about your part. Well, he's not talking to you, is he? Yeah, he is. He's not talking directly to you, but you're overhearing, and your ears are tuned to what he has to say. I think that's how our unmarried women should hear this poem. God the Father is talking to a young man about the kind of woman that he should prize as a wife. My ears are tuned. I'm listening. To the married women, there is obvious application here for us as this woman is a wife. For the widows and divorced that are not married at this point, strive for her character should strive to be a kind of woman like her, though you may not relate to a husband now or ever will relate to a husband again in this world. Strive for her character. To the married men, we maybe need to do a bit of work here. I think this is vital as we go through these next three weeks. Let me say this. You will play the fool to negatively judge your wife by this poem. Treating it as some sort of scorecard. Nope, she didn't. No, that's no, that's a no, that's a no. 
Now, marginal on this one, another three no's in a row. No. In the worst case scenario, what you might do is judge yourself for not valuing what you should have valued when you chose her to be your wife. That's maybe a hard word, but we don't use it to judge our wives. But more constructively, married men, I think we should be asking questions such as this. Do I function as the head of my wife in such a way that encourages her to mature as this kind of a wife? Do I value what I should value in my wife? Am I teaching my sons to value what God values? Am I teaching my daughters to be this kind of a woman? Am I teaching my daughters to be different? Now, hopefully engaging all of us to listen to what God is saying here, let me say, not to let anybody off the hook, but let's understand this is the idealized woman. There is no mention of sin in this woman's life. There's not even the slightest hint of a weakness in her life. And we have to take that into view. When the Israelites were honoring an ancient warrior, that wasn't the place in that poem generally to bring up all of their weaknesses. No weakness shows up here in this poem. But what is being described here is the truest form of humanity as epitomized in Jesus Christ. I believe we need to heighten our reading of this poem in, along those lines. This is the truest form of humanity which Jesus came to save us for and epitomized in his character. The character of the excellent wife is a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. What he would have a woman to look like and what he would have all of us as men to appreciate in women and indeed to lay down the example for them in our lives. Whenever God describes ideal humanity, it's easy to feel very discouraged. I don't think that's the point of this poem. I think the point is to know what genuine humanity looks like and to reach for it. Now there are those that tell us, well, before we get going too far down this track, let me say here, this is not about a woman, it's not about a wife. Um, throughout church history, there are those who have said this is, a, this is an allegorical section that is really talking about the Holy Spirit. I had to look real hard for that one in here. I didn't find any, any uh, thoughts that way that came to my mind. Uh, others who say it's really referring to the church of Jesus Christ. Don't think so. Others have said that it's the soul in covenant with God. All allegorical ideas. Probably the most, I think the most dangerous interpretive position is that it's a personification of lady wisdom. Now that makes sense contextually with the book of Proverbs. In chapter 1, we read of this lady wisdom. Remember, she stands up at the head of the, of the street and calls out to the young men. Well, as, as we read that, it's wisdom. It's, it's a personification. It's not a real woman calling out the men. And that, that, that's a right interpretation. We find her in chapter 8. We find her in chapter 9. Calling out to the weak and to the foolish to come to wisdom. And so some say this is just a closing of that very same idea. This woman here in Proverbs chapter 31 is not a real woman. She doesn't really have a family. She's not a wife. She's not a mother. This is just a personification of wisdom. Well, I think there's some reasons to reject that thinking. 
One is that it's by no means a natural reading of chapter 31. The other is that the other occurrences of the word Isha that is used of her here, wife or woman, in Proverbs refer to real women. And I think most significantly, the references to this woman is she's constantly referred to in the context of her home. There's references to her husband, there are references to her children throughout, and virtually everything that happens in these verses is dealing with her children and with her husband. You never see that of Lady Wisdom in chapters 1, 8, and 9. There's no sense that she's married to anyone or has children. It's just a personification there. Here, I think we're talking about a woman who lives in the sweaty, grimy, bloody world and is out getting her hands dirty every day to do the things God has called her to do, to be a woman of noble character. I think that's how we should read it. And as we read it in that way, in that natural reading of it, we would also stop to say many of these interpretive schemes are devised because the implications of this poem are troubling in our culture. That should never set us aside. We should take it as what the original author meant to say and then adjust to the culture in which we live, not allow the culture to adjust what God said. And so with that in view, we delve in. Much to say to all of us about a real woman in the real world that God says is a woman who is ideal in his eyes. We notice that in verse 10, don't we? An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. We note here that she is of exquisite worth to her husband. Like a jewel, such a woman is rare. Young men, we need to perk up our ears at this point. You need to get this. Those of you that someday may be married, you need to understand this. She is rare. It is highly unlikely she will be the first woman you ever have a crush on. You're going to probably have to keep working and keep looking. She's not just out there in many, many numbers. She's rare. You're looking for a rare person. And young women, what does this say to you, you who are unmarried? If you're going to honor the counsel of God, you need to become a rare woman. You need to become someone who's different. This is not a dime a dozen woman. This is someone who is rare and distinctive. Like a jewel, she's rare. And like a jewel, such a woman is highly valuable. She's valuable, as we note here in verse 10, and as we would apply that, she's valuable clearly contextually to her husband. She's of great worth to him. But she is also valuable in the judgment of God. In his assessment of her life, we must then look very carefully at this poem. And women, in perhaps in some unique way, to realize that God himself is saying that this woman is precious. She's of rare value and quality. Wardlaw said some time ago, very well, were it possible, it would be far more rational for a man to part with the largest fortune for the acquisition of a good wife than to obtain the largest fortune by wedding a bad one. She's of exquisite worth. Secondly, we note that she is trusted by her husband, verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Healthy marriages thrive on trust, and they never thrive without it. 
When you take a vow to join your soul in marriage to another, you enter a relationship of extreme risk. The inherently risky nature of love demands the utmost level of trust and confidence. And in that regard, the excellent wife is a rock. She does not merely convince her husband to trust her all the time. He does not trust her because it is the most reasonable course of action and there's very few alternatives. No, notice here that it is his heart that trusts her. Not simply his words, not simply convenience, but his heart trusts her. In other words, to the core of his being, in his most intimate, private thoughts, he wholly trusts her. The Proverbs are written for our meditation. We are supposed to take them and turn them over and think about them. They're not narratives that tell a story. They're not lengthy discourses such as we find in the teachings of Jesus or Paul. They're just simple statements that have much more to them than meets the eye, much more weight. So let's turn this over. The heart of her husband trusts in her. It says certainly that she will be a woman of fidelity. She remains tenaciously loyal and faithful to him as her husband and soulmate. He has no fear. Her affections for him will wander. There's nothing in his heart that fears that. She's not flirtatious with other men. She does not dress in provocative ways. She develops no friendship with male or female that will compromise her loyalty and devotion to him as her husband. He knows, as Wardlaw puts it, that her heart is his and his alone. She will be a woman of fidelity in whom her husband trusts. She will secondly be a woman of selflessness. Her husband has no fear that she will serve her own interests in a way that hurts his. He knows her to be one who will always act for his good. Thirdly, she will be a woman of self-control, discipline, and moral skill. He does not fear that she will speak to others about him or about their private affairs in a manner that hurts or embarrasses him. He is confident she will care for her body and fulfill her daily duties in a manner that is appropriate and honorable in all ways and to all people. He trusts her skillful management of time and resources and influence. He has no fear that she will misuse money and harm the family in that way. Fourthly, it would assume that she is submissive and supportive to his leadership from a biblical perspective. He does not worry that she will undermine his desires or dishonor the course that he charts for his family. He does not fear that she will make his life miserable until he yields to her every wish. He trusts her to deal skillfully and honorably with their children at all times and in accordance with the direction that he has laid out for his home. We find then, thirdly, in the major head, that she provides for her husband. She provides for her husband, the second part of verse 11, and he will have no lack of gain. Now that might catch you at first and say, what do you mean she provides for her husband? This word gain is a military term, and it is usually translated plunder. I think it refers to verses 13 and following. 
You see this woman very active in the context of providing for her home. He will provide for her. That goes without saying here. That's not the context. But in a genuine sense of the term, she provides for him. While he carries on business at the city gate, verse 23, she executes countless sorties into the community and carries out diligent efforts at home to secure everything that he needs. Her orientation, and here's where it becomes offensive in our culture, but it is clearly the case that her orientation is to support him in his work. And she will work hard in doing that. But it will be oriented toward helping him in his work. I think of moms along this line. Not only is there an application to be taken to heart here for each one, but I would encourage mothers as well along these lines to teach your daughters to shop wisely. We'll talk about this more, Lord willing, next week. But teach them to shop wisely. Teach them to know how to go out and provide for a family the things that a woman can uniquely provide for them. Show them how it's done. I know it takes more time. It's more complicated. Sometimes it actually gets downright messy. But bring them along in the car and show them the ropes so that they learn how to live with skill in a way that is honorable to their husband someday by God's grace. Number four, she does her husband good at all times. Another characteristic, verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. His physical and spiritual well-being are persistently benefited by the way she relates to him. In word and deed, her life pours out nothing but goodness in his direction. It says certainly that she is not selfish, quarrelsome, manipulative, dishonest, deceitful, stifling, untrustworthy, lazy, helpless, distant, inattentive, cold-hearted, foolish, or anything else that could be described as harmful to him. Rather, all the days of her life, she pours her life out to benefit him in the routine of daily life. You know, the fact is, a wife can do unspeakable harm to her husband. We've all seen it. She can tear him down and devastate him with one fateful blow. But she can tear him down as well, little by little, day after day, in innumerable ways. And in the end, his life is miserable because he knows her. It's a tragic thing. By the grace of God, including even the common grace of God, thankfully, few men experience the whole drink to the bitter end on that matter. God is gracious. But we can say and must say that a woman can destroy her husband's life. She can make him utterly miserable. She has a choice to make, it seems. To orient her life toward doing him good all of his days, or orienting her life to getting her way, so that he matches up, blessed when he does what she wants him to, cursed when he doesn't. There's an orientation that is here. And I speak again to the unmarried women. Are you preparing to live a life that is oriented to doing a man good all your days? That may not be God's will for you to be married. You don't know that yet at this point. But are you even thinking in those terms? Is that part of your worldview? Believe me, it is not something that's going to be presented to you by this world's culture. 
That you would be growing and aging as a young woman to give your life away to serving a man with good all of his days. That just doesn't even filter into our culture. It doesn't register. We've got to think differently. To our unmarried men, do you realize the potential for disaster that marriage brings with it? Be very careful. Are you preparing to seek a woman who will do you good all the days of your life? And most young men would stand up and say, well, absolutely. Why would you want anything else? Hormones. Sometimes the passions get out of control and a choice is made. Let's say with that, young men, that you need to become the kind of man that attracts such a woman. Are you preparing to live a life oriented toward pouring out grace upon your wife? If it weren't for the grace of God, you should be duct taped to a pole and shot if you have the thought that this is all about her and has nothing to do with me. But God's more gracious than that. And sadly, there's much pain as men take this list and check off their wives, or as young men pursuing marriage are constantly looking at how a woman lines up with this text and does, do not look in the mirror and say, how do I line up with it? Would such a woman even want to know me? We will sound this theme again, but the wife of moral valor in God's eyes is a woman whose life is willingly oriented toward that of her husband. That is a radical statement in our culture. It is a statement that we need to make over and again as we go through this section of Proverbs. Her life is oriented toward his. She orients her life to him such that she does him good all of her days. Now this, we understand from a biblical perspective, is a reflection of the Creator's design of the woman as a suitable helper. It fits perfectly with what God has designed and brought into being. It gets horribly corrupted in a sinful world, and this is why it's so hard to take sometimes, and why many Christians mute texts like this and don't want to talk about them. Don't preach this in the church. You're crying out loud, you'll empty the thing out. I thought you were trying to fill it up. It's exactly what we need to hear. We need to hear the very things that our culture refuses to hear. God's Word makes this crystal clear. What clouds it is the thinking of our world. Her life is to be oriented toward His and toward doing Him good all of her days. And as she grows into a young woman of marriageable age, she is to be oriented that way. And should God not grant her the privilege to be married in this life at any place in time, she should be a woman of this kind of character, who pours out her life in service toward others. This is not demeaning. What it is is rare. It's a woman who is highly honored by God. And we should honor it. We should honor it not by muting the message. Not by keeping texts like this down. Not by ignoring the hurt of a sinful world. But we should honor such women. And we should honor this orientation in our affections. 
in our own orientation toward life, and in the training of the next generation. Excellent wives, noble women, women of valor, in the biblical sense of the word, are not going to be produced by American culture. They're not going to learn this on television. They're not going to hear this in public schools. They're not going to pick this up from the billboards. This has to be taught. We need to gain the ear of our young people and with earnestness say to them, you must think differently. You've got to see that there's a satanic deception that wants nothing but your misery. You've got to open your ears and listen to a different message. There's beauty in the counsel of God. Don't be fooled by the fact that it never is popular. Because we're bent to death. We're bent toward death in everything that we choose as a people lost in sin. But where Christ comes in and redeems the soul, we can begin to listen to the voice of our God and hear of genuine beauty within the home and within the church. Indeed, I think the big picture here that we must never lose is that this isn't just about a woman. This is about authentic humanity that is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ who walked on dusty roads, who poured out his sweat and blood and tears for people, who went out in active obedience in this world and changed it for God. That's who this woman is about. She's about Jesus. She is a female. Jesus was a male. There is no crossover there by any means, but she is a reflection of the character of Christ. We have the true humanity pictured here in ideal terms. And I think if you come to this point and say, I feel no tinge of conviction, God has not spoken to me in any way, shape, or form in this message here today, I think you are perhaps dead or you need to come to the early service next week because you're too sleepy. How could we go through this and not be convicted of our own sin? This isn't easy stuff that God presents to us. It shows us who we are in our humanity and how far we fall, whether male or female, married or unmarried. Is there conviction? We can go out of here and shoulder bad feelings and never, ever change. God puts his finger of conviction on our hearts and on our souls so that we will change to be conformed into the likeness of the ultimate person, Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer says along these lines of conviction, not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. That has been the intention of this service today. As we have sung these words of praise to our all-wise God and these words of praise to our holy God, the intention is for us to stand before Him in awe. And as we consider Proverbs 31, to stand before Him in our littleness, 
distrusting our own thoughts, and then to bend in repentant, humble mean. To be turned upside down so that the divine wisdom can become ours. This is true for husbands. We all stand as we read this poem with the author. Not too many husbands are going to disagree with what's said here. But we must ask ourselves, are we reflecting the same quality of character as husbands? Are we encouraging such character in our wives by our own progress in the faith? As young people, do we see God's standard as the standard at which we are striving? The goal here is living actively and faithfully in a fallen world as we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ until he returns or calls us home. And I've never found that to be a comfortable project. It always takes change. It always involves conviction. It always involves repentance of sin. But let's strive. Don't leave here discouraged. Leave here repentant. Don't leave here discouraged but with blazing hope in the realization that what God has started in your life as a believer, He is bringing to completion through His Holy Spirit. He is working to change you. Praise Him for that. And may we have that hope to move forward in that. For those of you who are young people and judge your parents along these lines and say they fall very far short of this, understand one thing. Marriage is a whole lot harder than you'll ever know until you're in it. That makes no excuses. But you need to realize that as you see your parents, you see with a depth that virtually no one else on earth sees. Those of you particularly that are older and living at home. Remember that it's harder than it appears But please think of it in these terms. The Spirit of God is using those errors and sins in your parents' life to transform them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you were standing before a block of granite and saw a sculptor working on that block to turn it into something of beauty, there's going to be a lot of hammering and chiseling. It doesn't look pretty right away. It takes time. And by God's grace, He will continue to chisel and to hammer and to knock off the edges in all of our lives until we are ready and willing to submit to His teaching to become the people that God wants us to be.